Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. You can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. Reflecting on this past year, which will be one of the most memorable in our lifetimes for various reasons, along with some of the tough news, there were also notable bright spots. The world of publishing, specifically culinary journalism, the focus of the show today is one such example. As the expanding global culture in and around the business of food and the people whose livelihood it intersects with becomes more accessible, what's Morisako serving as a special this week in his uber hot Paris restaurant? Uh, let me Google it. The audience's interest is driving an appetite for culinary insights from all over the map. Two words of the moment are diversity and inclusion. Why that is potentially exciting to the reader of published information on the subject is simple. Everyone has a voice and all culinary histories have a rightful place in the conversation. Dawn Davis, our guest today, took the reins in 2020 as the editor of Condé Nast's 65-year-old food and entertainment publication, Bone Appetit, and is the third person of color to head one of Condé Nast's American publications. Announcing her appointment, the New York Times called Miss Davis, quote, a book world star. A native of Los Angeles, Ms. Davis earned her B.A. in international relations while at Stanford and began her career on Wall Street. She studied abroad in Nigeria and upon returning to the States, transitioned into publishing. During more than two decades in the book business, she has shepherded a number of critically acclaimed and commercially successful literary works, including The Known World, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, which she acquired during her time as publisher of Amistad, a HarperCollins imprint, a book line devoted to works on the African diaspora. The Pursuit of Happiness, which we all know from the Will Smith movie, The Butler, which became a movie that Lee Daniels directed. Her imprint has also published Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires, the winner of a 2019 Whiting Award. She's also worked with the actor-comedian Kevin Hart in his book, I Can't Make This Up. And The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl by Issa Rae, a memoir that capitalized on the popularity of Ms. Rae's YouTube series of the same name and helped pave the way for her HBO show Insecure. Ms. Davis is also the founder of the Inkwell Book Club, a national online book club recognizing black authors. And no stranger to the food world, Ms. Davis authored, If You Can Stand the Heat, Tales from Chefs and Restaurateurs, which I plan to dig into a bit later with her during the podcast. Ms. Davis edited The Recipe of Memory, Five Generations of Mexican Cuisine, which was nominated for James Beard Foundation Award and two Julia Child Cookbook Awards. She was an honoree, the Visionary Award in 2014. And in 2019, she was honored with the Editor's Award by Poets and Writers, which recognizes outstanding contributions over time to publications of poetry or literary prose. A true trailblazer and inspiration, Dawn Davis, thanks for joining me and welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you for having me, Brad. Thank you. So, Dawn, we kick things off with what we call our short order questions. Nothing to tax you too much. Just get your response to a few things that we're interested in about you. So tell me, what are you listening to these days? What's in heavy rotation on your playlist? 
Well, I could listen to Al Green and Stevie Wonder all day. I've been listening to a lot of Sade. I'm just very old school at the moment. There's something very comforting about those classics. And also I'm rediscovering some new tracks, particularly for Al Green. So yeah, that's what I'm listening to. Yeah, I just heard an, uh, an Al Green track and I didn't think I could be surprised by anything that he sang because I love him so much. But he, he did a recording of The Letter. Do you know that song? My I baby just wrote me a letter. I have to hear that. No, oh, it, it's slamming Don. I'm telling you, I, I really enjoyed it. I just discovered it this week. It's funny that you mentioned him. Speaking of that, I was at a friend's studio yesterday and I heard Aretha Franklin singing Oh, Happy Day. And I had never oh. heard that. And I thought oh. I'd gone. She took me places. <laughs> so I can yes. say it's amazing. Yeah. Edwin Hawkins, I think, was the original uh, recorded the original. All right. So tell me, Don, where are you looking forward to traveling to? Well, I always, always love traveling to Italy. And I have to say the uh, Stanley Tucci show kind of just rekindled that. In fact, I was supposed to go to Sicily in June 2020, but we all know what happened to the travel plans for that year. I, I love traveling to Mexico and I love traveling to Africa. I was in Namibia in December 2019, and that was just a spectacular, spectacular uh, place. So, you know, if I could pick something out of the hat and it was, you know, the continent of Africa, anywhere in Mexico or anywhere in Italy, I'd be happy. <laughs> Nothing wrong with those destinations at all. Favorite food memory growing up? So I think you might actually know this place. You've spent some time in Los Angeles, but you know, I, I grew up pretty humbly and um, I had great home cooks in my family. My aunt Stella, my mom, we all, you know, had a, a family, aunts and uncles and cousins, but we would go on Friday nights to Marie Callender's and it wasn't fancy, but the atmosphere um, was just so fun and festive and they were known for their pies. So for me, like a special night out was Marie Callender's. And it's funny, I was with my children. Uh, we we get to spend some time in the summer in, in uh, Martha's Vineyard, and there's a place called Sharky's, and it's not you know it's it's Mexican food, but it's not highbrow culinary Mexican food. And my my kids were like, let's go to that fancy restaurant Sharky's. And I think <laughs> calendars was fancy in my mind the way Sharky's is fancy in in their minds. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, so speaking of, what do you have to eat? when you arrive in Martha's Vineyard? Ooh, that's a really good question. So I love lobster bisque. I only eat it there. It's so good. It's so fresh. I love a restaurant called State Road, whatever they prepare. I love going up there. I live what's called Down Island. And if I go up mm -hmm. Island, that's fantastic. And I love the scallops at Atria. Those are some of the so things much. that I love to eat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fried clam guy. I have to get them from Giordano's. Oh. And uh, yeah, maybe some onion rings and definitely a lobster roll from John's Fish Market. In, oh, in funny. Our kids are just turning teens. And so they started getting jobs all over the island. And one of our uh, good friends, their daughter worked at the pizza place at, at, uh -huh. at Donos. So, yeah. yeah, that's a great window right there, right across from the flying horses. Right. You need that. And so I love <laughs> the net result. If you want to get specific, I love net results, lobster bisque. So, so good. All right. Dawn secrets. All <laughs> right. So complete, complete this sentence for me. I have little patience for the word just. <laughs> the word just to me implies kind of compromise. Let's just do this. You know, oh. let's just do that. I, I really don't like that phrase. That That's my secret. Yeah, I can't bear it. 
Okay. You want to know from a culinary perspective? Well, since you went there, why not? Yeah, any anything come to mind that you'd have little patience for in that world? You know what I have little patience for? I have little patience for people who <laughs> invite you to dinner and then don't do anything special. And I don't mean by that like it has to be some fancy food, but you know, someone will invite you to dinner and then there'll be something like really plain, like a hot dog or hamburger, you know. And I don't mind that if it's pre- prepared with a lot of love and it's their secret recipe and there's this and that. But when it's just kind of tossed in front of you and it's not special, I, I don't like that. Right. You want some thought given to the occasion, would, even if it's even if it's a simple meal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I get because, it. Because, you know, that's your time and that's your time away from your own projects and your own. Yeah. So that that's what I don't like. Um, who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Well, it's funny because in uh, Bon Appetit, one of the first columns that I started is called the Dream Dinner Party, where I ask notable people who they would have. And we've had so much fun with that column. I did. Uh, I talked to Billie Jean King and she has such a fantastic list, which you can find uh, online. But one of the people she said she would be too shy to ask Nicole Hannah-Jones. And when I saw her on the vineyard, I told her that and she said, oh, I'd love for Billie to call me and invite me to dinner. So, you know, she tweeted that out. So that's kind of fun. It's a hard question. And I know why some people have a hard time answering it because there's so many interesting people. I have to say uh, Harriet Tubman would probably be the person I'd most want to sit with. And in our October issue, which I know we're going to get into later, I interviewed Jose Andreas and one of his three people was also Harriet Tubman. Wow. I'm interested in her because she, you know, as he expressed it and as uh, I worked on a book, uh, illustrated uh, biography of her, she could have rested, you know, she could have gotten herself out of slavery her family out of slavery and called it a day, but she kept going back. I think she went back about a dozen times, maybe 13 times. And she just kept returning and putting her own self in danger, her own physical self in danger. And then when that was done, she, you know, became a spy in the civil war and then she became a nurse. And then when, when she got to Canada, she, or, when she got to New York, in Auburn, New York, she started a home for the elderly because suddenly there were all of these newly freed people who were elderly and had no kind of infrastructure and support. So just, you know, would love to talk with her. Yeah, what an what an inspiration. I mean, those some of those things I did not know. I've, I've read a little bit about quite a bit about Harriet Tubman. But yeah, the, the inspiration and the the endurance of what one person can do when, you know, committed to a cause is is inspirational and, and makes you wonder about your day and what you complain about and what you shouldn't complain about. Right. One hundred percent. All right. Well, thank you. Let's let's uh, jump in here. So congratulations on the Bon Appetit spot. I mean, it's it's a very exciting thing. A lot of buzz around you being there. But uh, given all that's gone on in the world, how are you? How are you doing? Um. Yeah, It. that's a good question. It is a at times I think we all feel a little overwhelmed by, you know, global warming and, and cities flooding and cities melting and uh, the ongoing pandemic and, you know, what's happening in geopolitics. So it can be overwhelming. But uh, if I just kind of look on what's on my desk, I'm excited about what we're doing at Bon Appetit. I'm excited about the team we've assembled. And I'm excited to have this opportunity to, you know, keep what's 
amazing about Bon Appetit and then expand it to be more inclusive, to be uh, more interesting. We have this idea that come for the recipes and stay for the idea. It's, it's a model that I've developed with my team and I'm, I'm, you know, keen to see what we can do with that. You know, as I as I hear you saying that, Dawn, you know, I, I think about the fact that, yeah, the news can be very challenging to watch, yet you can't turn away. But we we definitely need things that bring us pleasure. Right. And and enjoyment and life goes on. I mean, even amid all of the, the struggle and strife. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting for some people, you open this segment with music. For some people, that's music. I know that I feel instantly, you know, more happy when I'm listening to music. I published a book with Michael Strahan years ago. And, you know, he said he starts every day with music. It just puts him in a better mood. And that is true. And for some people, it's cooking. You know, cooking makes them really happy. Mm -hmm. It's a way to, uh, first of all, feed their family, feed their friends, bring joy and pleasure to people. But it's also a way for them to kind of leave their own mind or leave, you know, the news and just really work with their hands and it gives them so much joy. So we are in that business as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I admit as someone who has spent their entire life in restaurants, it's it's basically what I've done uh, for a living my entire life. It had been a while since I picked up a food magazine. And this past year with more time for reading uh, and more downtime, I have to say Bon Appetit for me is now a must read every month. I want to talk about the uh, exciting October food issue that's coming up, the future of restaurants that'll be hitting the newsstands, I think, you know, pretty, pretty soon here. But first, go back briefly to the September fall issue, which I thoroughly enjoyed and a few pieces in particular. I'm a real big fan of your What Am I Loving snapshot on the editor's uh, letter page. So I'd like to start there and ask you about the new menu at New York City's 11 Madison. The menu is meatless. Chef Daniel Hume stated the current food system is not sustainable in an article recently in the New York Times. You mentioned a couple of items. You mentioned bread and sunflower butter, vegan butter with a glaze made from miso and sunflower seeds, carrot tartare. That sounds delicious. Was it as good as it sounds? <laughs> it was delicious. And if you ever are in New York, I will arrange that you get to taste it for yourself. Mm. And first of all, I want to thank you for, for commenting on uh, finding Bon Appetit to be a magazine that you want to read. We have a great team. We're working with great writers. And I've been hearing that from people that, you know, they come for the recipes, but now they're actually reading the articles as well. So that means a lot to me, um, Brad. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. 11 Madison was delicious. And if you, it's really tough to get a reservation, but you can go and sit at the bar if you go early. And this sunflower butter was so spectacular. And I was told that the skeptics who thought, you know, can a vegan restaurant work were convinced once they tasted the butter, they thought, you know, if he can make this butter, you wouldn't have known if someone hadn't told me it was vegan, I would not have known and, and paired with this delicious hearty bread. It was so yummy. And the carrot tartare just, you know, it was a combination of smoked carrots and grated carrots. And it had some pickling relish in it. It was just so fantastic and so interesting. And then the apricot vermouth was delicious and refreshing. And they'll rotate that seasonally. So I don't know if it will, if it's still on the menu, but it was such a treat. I felt uplifted. It was delicious. Wow. You know how some vegan uh, dishes are tried to replace the actual experience of eating meat. Was the carrot tartare in, in that vein or was, was it just fresh and, and had its own kind of consistency? 
No, it was it was not trying to be, you know, a, a burger or uh, some kind of animal protein. It was just mm-hmm. looking at all the different things you could do with carrots and the layering of it and just presenting this, you know, multi-dimensional experience with this one ingredient. It had other ingredients in it. It has had apple and horseradish relish, as I recall. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was just delicious. That sounds incredible. So, Don, going meatless for such a high profile restaurant is a pretty strong statement. What what was your take on the appeal? And do you think this furthers the conversation around sustainability? Are we going to be seeing more of these kind of high profile restaurants kind of lean in this direction towards meatless menus? So we profiled in our May issue, which is one of the times we, t- we talked about sustainability. Uh, Chef Justin Lee has a restaurant called Fat Choy, and he went meatless as well so that he could show he also had concerns about the planet and wanted to show that you could also get amazing flavors uh, using a kind of vegan menu and a vegan profile. And his, what is it? It's his salt and pepper cauliflower, which we have in our pages on bonappetit.com. It just is amazing. So I think, look, between, what have we had? We just talked about this. We've had triple digits in the Pacific Northwest. We've had flooding on the north in the Northeast. We had tornadoes. There was a tornado warning in Martha's Vineyard um, on the day before I left. So we have to talk about the planet. I think these chefs and culinary professionals getting involved in the conversation is warranted. I think we all have to figure out what our role is. And I applaud him for for at least trying to broaden the, the dialogue around this. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I, um, I'm very anxious to get to New York and I will take you up on that offer to get me a seat at the bar to try that, <laughs> to try their food. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Dawn, another item in the fall issue that caught my eye was a mention of the uh, L.A.-based pop-up Bridgetown Roti. And I have two connecting points to that. One, Mona Holmes, uh, who writes for Eater L.A., first told me about Bridgetown. And then Something I never thought I'd be talking about as often as I have for new Greek, <laughs> which was a completely new item for me. I also recently discovered um, through another guest on the podcast, Lokalani Alabanza, who is using it as an ingredient in her vegan ice cream. She's based out of Nashville and she's got a, a really cool uh, ice cream brand that she's launched and she did a flavor that she dedicated to uh, Kamala Harris with the new Greek. So I've only ever thought though about patties as a Jamaican specialty. I grew up in New York and spent time in Jamaica and I love Jamaican patties. I still try to find them wherever I am. But Chef Regida from, uh, is from Barbados and her meat patties are made with oxtails and fenugreek Greek shows up here. So how do those taste? What, what's going on there? You know, I, I don't know how they taste because I haven't tasted them, but it is an ingredient that is used in Middle Eastern food. It's used in a lot of Asian food. So I think it's one of those things when you when you scratch below the surface, it's probably in more dishes than we commonly think. I know I, I looked through the archives. We have it in several uh, recipes in Bon Appetit, including a chili and yogurt marinated grilled chicken, mm. uh, ye- a Yemeni chicken matzo ball soup. So uh, some spice marinated grilled lamb chops. I think it's one of those ingredients where if you, I would love to trace it, you know, how did it get from A to point B? I was talking to Dr. Jessica Harris last week, maybe two weeks ago, and she started talking about sesame being um, an African ingredient and from the African pantry. And I don't know that I would have associated sesame with African, you know, as an African pantry item as, Mm -hmm. as a first thought I would have thought 
that it had its roots in Asia. So right. it's interesting where, where food, the journey. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, so Chef Bryant Terry's article discussing his book, Black Food, and like High on the Hog, the, the Netflix series that Jessica B. Harris uh, participated in based on her book, it examines the origin and journey of the cuisine rooted in Africa with stops in the Caribbean, ultimately reaching the shores of the United States. So, Don, what is it about this moment that has made connecting those culinary historical dots so compelling? Why are we here now? Well, I think we all know that, uh, as you mentioned, I think in your introduction, diversity and inclusion is top of mind for several people, including people who have the ability to broaden who the gatekeepers are and who the storytellers are. And so people are interested and have the microphone for now. People have the microphone to tell these stories. I think the question is, how long will we have the microphone? And where I want to be optimistic that, you know, we have reached a, a moment. But also these stories are interesting. The The story of American cuisine is the story of indigenous people's ingredients, uh, what we brought from Africa with us, and what other immigrants brought from their home countries with us, and then how we all, you know, the melange and, and how we all synchronized and how these cuisines blended and came together. Um, and so, Doctor, first of all, and also Dr. Harris is an amazing storyteller. She's an Amer- she's an amazing conversationalist. She has fantastic stories and ideas, and she knows history. So, I think you have the combination of the gatekeepers are changing. You have compelling content, and you have wonderful storytellers, such as. Tony Tipton Martin, such as who's a journalist, uh, such as Jessica Harris, Dr. Jessica Harris. So I think that's why we are finding these stories on Netflix and cookbooks in the pages of Bon Appetit. We were thrilled to be able to have the first excerpt for of his book, Black Food, which comes out in October. We were able to put that in our September issue to give our readers and subscribers an early look. So compelling content. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and also finding out about some of these people for the first time. Again, I've been in the restaurant business my entire life and I never knew about Brian Terry. So I'm looking forward to his book and and, and appreciating all of the new stuff that I'm discovering. Brad, he's a fascinating person. I will just say I'm I'm mm-hmm. interviewing him for podcast today, too. And I've read his books and his background's really interesting. He's a, you know, master's in history, a culinary graduate, a vegan, really interesting person. His his in Bon Appetit, uh, we excerpted from his book, Black Food, but, you know, he's written books on veganism and he's just really interesting. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that. So the last piece, Don, that I wanted to talk about um, was an article written by Peter Kamansky titled New York Strong. And it's fitting, of course, we're coming up on uh, 9-11 and his description of an employee working on the 74th floor of to World Trade, which was the second tower to go down, passing firefighters as he exited this going down the stairwell, descending the stairwell. It was just his his retelling of that um, was really vivid and gut wrenching. The parallel and this leads to the October issue is how the restaurant community rallied in support of firefighters, policemen 
and rescue workers that were working at what became known as Ground Zero around 9-11. And then during the pandemic, we saw restaurants become frontline workers delivering thousands of meals to people who needed them. So many stories emerged this past year. Restaurants, operators, and chefs were often front and center in the nightly news. Lots of hardship and pain, but plenty to be inspired by. So how is the October issue different from restaurant issues in the past? Yes. So a couple of things. We did want to, in our September issue, pay tribute to the people who lost their lives in 9-11. And we also wanted to connect it to the restaurant industry. So we also, in addition to talking to Wilson Tang, who is the person you mentioned, who who gave that just really descriptive passage of what it was like, we also talked to Michael Lomonaco, who owned Windows on the World or who operated Windows on the World and lost many uh, employees um, during 9-11. And he set up a fund to actually Actually, uh, support all of the employees' children until they turn 21. And here we are. So it was important to me as editor-in-chief to pay homage to 9-11, but also to recognize that was a time when the restaurant industry was in trouble. And they're also in trouble uh, because of the pandemic. As we know, so many restaurants closed. So many restaurateurs had to go into their personal savings to support their staff. Um, and many feel like their staff is their family. They lost so much, their savings, their livelihood, etc. So it was important to kind of connect those pandemics and to think about the restaurant industry, which gives us so much uh, as an industry that kind of 20 years later is going through hardship once again. And so it felt like we had to, in the pages of Bon Appetit and online and Bon Appetit, talk about you know, what makes an excellent restaurant in a new way. And we created something called Heads of the Table. Celebrating certain restaurants, especially given this last year, There are lessons to glean from the stories of hardship, as well as turning lemons into lemonade. But in this case, the pandemic created some unprecedented maneuvering and pivoting. Generally speaking, what were some of the criteria for the restaurants being included in this issue? So traditionally, we do something at Bon Appetit called the Hot 10, where we pick 10 restaurants that are worth traveling for, that are worth you know doing whatever you can to get a reservation for. And we really want to highlight cuisines and chefs and restaurateurs that we are excited about. But it seemed like, first of all, in order to do that, we have to be able to travel and send scouts out to travel and eat at these restaurants. So that was difficult during the pandemic, if not impossible, particularly during lockdown. But it also didn't seem like the time to try to pit one restaurant against the other in any kind of competitive way when all of them were struggling, struggling to stay open, struggling to pay their employees, struggling to pay rent. So what the team and I came up with is a new paradigm and we call it heads of the table. And what we wanted to do is celebrate the people in the industry who serve their community in interesting and important ways. Either they supported essential workers, they supported the elderly who were when we didn't know how, you know, you got COVID or how COVID was transmitted, they were able to bring food to the elders so they didn't have to go out as much. We looked at people who supported front of the house as well as back of the house. People, we always think about the chefs, but what about the dishwashers? You know, Anthony Bourdain famously said that without a dishwasher, a restaurant wouldn't last an hour, right? So what about people who support those? We we found uh, people who supported or who started actually a sommelier foundation because the sommeliers 
is not only select the wines that go with each meal, but they often help out and do, you know, serve as a jack of all trades in restaurants. So we were looking for people who were thinking about their employees and thinking about their community and were really changing the way we re- we define what a good restaurant is. And we called that list our heads of the table list. We have 12 restaurants or organizations or people in that list, and we're really proud of it. It comes out in October. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I, I love that. You know, I've known guys that have, you know, lived that lived when I was in Los Angeles that lived an hour outside of L.A. that would get up at 4 a.m. to work their first breakfast shift, work breakfast and lunch at one restaurant and then come to perhaps my place if they worked for me for their dinner shift with an hour break in between. I mean, work, you know, around the clock and then an hour, you know, to get home and do that, you know, five or six days a week. Just so many incredible stories. And I have to say, coming from a restaurateur, that means a lot to me that this list resonates with you. I We have one of the uh, heads of the table is Ed Lee, who has the Lee Initiative. And he said, this is so great. We should all get together and exchange, you know, ideas and best practices. And so it's really important to me that this idea is landing with restaurateurs and people behind the scenes. And of course, we want the consumers, when you're picking your next restaurant, of course, you want to think about how delicious the food is and what's the cocktail menu like. But we also want you to think about, you know, the the restaurants that really went out of their way to come up with a new way of supporting community. So Dawn, on that note, and, you know, just just with your view into the industry and this being the, the future of restaurants um, that we're that we're discussing here, you know, given the cost increases that, you know, we read about, hear about, certainly us as operators know firsthand food and labor, everything's getting more expensive. There's a lot of lost revenue from last year being shut down. Um, and the virus introduced the idea of touchless menus and or, or it certainly accelerated, you know, these kinds of conversations. But do you, in terms of changes to the industry, either models of service or price increases. What what do you see in that regard? Do you think that we're going to be looking at a kind of paradigm shift there? Yes, I do. I think that restaurants were forced in a short time to be crafty and think on their feet. And some of them, for instance, are you know, being more entrepreneurial, not only in having a restaurant, but maybe bottling their sauces or their condiments. Some of them are partnering with organizations like Gold Belly, which can ship their signature dish across country. So, you know, like Marie Callender's could ship their pies in New York City, for example. I've heard of neighborhood restaurants banding together to form their own delivery service so that they don't have to work with the delivery services that they think take too much of a cut out of their profit. Uh, Maybe even, you know, having coalitions where they can, you know, have a plan in place should another pandemic hit of how they're going to share supply chains. So, yes, I definitely think that this will change um, how restaurants build, think about their business model. They're changing their menu so that their takeout menu can really support their business as well. And maybe it's more elevated or maybe they have different items that really, you know, can sustain the the delivery time, et cetera. So absolutely. I think, I think this has changed. Also in California, you know, I have to say in California, I wish I were, that was a Freudian slip in New York. Uh, There's been a lot more outdoor space. So restaurants that survived have more outdoor 
indoor space that creates a different kind of ambiance. Um, they have to therefore invest in heating systems for when it gets cold. So yeah, it definitely has changed the restaurant industry. Yeah, but it's that what you just mentioned is certainly created a vibrant, you know, really exciting sidewalk life, yeah. right? For these restaurants that have kind of moved outdoors into the street and a, and a different kind of street scene. 100%. 100%. I, I love it, I have to say, um, particularly when the weather is nice, but also some of them created these almost cabins for even when it gets a little colder. So it's definitely energized for those that have survived the restaurant scene, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, Don, there's an old saying, how can we miss you if you don't go away? And I think it's safe to say those of us that love dining out in restaurants certainly have missed them. The events of the unpre- of an unprecedented year created a renewed appreciation for the experience of dining out and for the people who go to great lengths to make those dining experiences more memorable. What are some of the inspirational stories that we can expect in your October issue. Anything that you can share? Oh, absolutely. And listen, I love eating out. I helm a a magazine for home cooks and we have dozens of recipes every month for the home cook. But I too, and, and my staff also loves eating out. We love the theater of it. In terms of inspiring stories, uh, I'm inspired by Chris Williams of Lucille's, uh, who created a hospitality group. He has a fun restaurant in Houston. Also, you know, um, cooking and culinary professional, being a culinary professional runs in his family as well. But I'm inspired by the way he first began feeding essential workers, then worked with Jose Andreas World Central Kitchen to feed the elderly. Um, and when World Central Kitchen moved out, Chris stayed and continued to feed the elderly. He then one night uh, or a couple nights would give his bar out to restaurants that had to close so that they could kind of keep their staff afloat a little bit and let them take all the money minus the, the cost of the alcohol. I'm inspired by a guy named Eric C who created something called Ursula. He used to have a bakery when that closed down, you know, he thought he was done with restaurants, but what realized that restaurants bring community together and he was given a pop-up at Claire Sprouse's Hunky Dory and returned to not baking, but started making breakfast burritos inspired by his New Mexican heritage. And that, be, that became super, super popular. And he in turn paid it forward and now has gives pop-ups to the LGBTQ community. So I just kind of love that, how he's creating opportunities for other people as well. So lots of great stories. I'm inspired by Down North Pizza in Philadelphia. They hired the formerly incarcerated to make this delicious uh, Detroit-style pizza, but they also help with housing. Uh, They train them. They give them culinary training. They give them a voice. So, you know, delicious food, plus people who are paying it forward. I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, that makes the future seem bright. I also want to give a shout out to my team who helped me find all of these amazing restaurants. And not only do we have the heads of the table in our October issue, but we also have a section called the audacity of opening where we look at restaurants. We know a lot of restaurants closed during the pandemic, but we're actually featuring several that opened and we feature, you know, talk about why they opened. And I think those are really compelling stories as well. And then we have a fantastic feature, Brad, that I'm really excited about as an editor on parenting in the restaurant industry. We were talking a lot about childcare. And as you just mentioned, so many people in the restaurant industry work at night. So if there's not 
proper daycare in the day. You can imagine how hard it is uh, to find any kind of facilities or daycare centers at night. So I think this is a really important article just to draw attention to what if we really love restaurants, as you mentioned, and we we miss them and we realize how much you know they mean to us. We have to think about an infrastructure that supports uh, workers in this industry. Don, these are such great stories to you know bring attention to down north pizza. That's not anything that I don't know how you would have found out about something like that. So bravo to you um, for bringing you know a story like that to light. I can't wait to find out a little bit more about them. So I'm really curious about your background. I know you grew up in Los Angeles. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just kind of dive into that a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what growing up in the Davis household was like? In terms of growing up in LA, it just wasn't that interesting. You know, I... I went to school in Hollywood, which sounds really fun. I graduated from the Hollywood Bowl, which was amazing. I learned that it was the the school um, that Princess Megan went to when at one of my um, reunions, people kept talking about the wedding, the wedding. And I was like, why are they talking about this wedding? And they're like, oh, she went here. So I, I but, but beyond that, I had a very middle class, working class upbringing. I had a warm family where food was at the center of it. I ate a lot of, you know, what we think of or some describe as soul food, but I also, my mother's, my grandmother's Italian. So there was spaghetti and meatballs twice a week. So yeah, it was, it was pretty American, you know, just pretty like work hard. Don't get in trouble. Yeah. My, uh, my mom was Italian and my dad was black. So I grew up eating that the same mix of soul food and Italian food. Her, her, you know, oh spaghetti, lasagna and all that stuff was incredible. But then she learned soul food from my dad's mom, who was from Georgia. So I had I had that mix. And uh, oh, how funny. Yeah, we're kind of I won't say we're uniforms because unicorns, because if you scratch, you find a lot of, you know, all kinds of mixes in American culture. But that's a particularly interesting one. Yeah. 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 So um, I know that you mentioned um, Marie Callender's, but any other places from your childhood that you would, you would dine out that at the to mind? Well, I have to give a shout out to Farmer's Market, the old school Farmer's Market. Um, you know, so for for the listeners who don't recall, it used to literally be a kind of covered Farmer's Market. There was a butcher. There were several, you know, um, stores that sold fresh fruit. They were really kind of open market stalls. They weren't even stores that sold fresh fruit and vegetables and tons of bakeries. And um, I remember a nut shop that had kind of, you know, this delicious California nuts and pistachios and almonds. Um, And my first job, I got my first job at a bakery in farmer's market. So that really stands out. It was a, a kind of great place. It's right in the center of LA and people from all walks of life would come. And I really love it. Now it's adjacent to the Grove and there there's, you know, several food stands. I still go there. It's still part of, I, I brought my kids up in New York, but when we go to LA, we go to the farmer's market with my mother. So it's part of my LA. Yeah. I do the same thing with my son. We walk through the Grove, but then we ultimately end up somewhere in the farmer's market and, you know, plop down and, and that's where we, I, we, it's a, it's a ritual for us. But, it's a ritual. I brag. We have all these things in common. I'm sorry. <laughs> who, who knew? <laughs> maybe we were a do part is fighting for a table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also, also, you know, also memories of LA are just, you know, 
food memories, not terribly good food. And in, in, in a way, just kind of the boardwalk food of Venice Beach. You have yeah. to have to give that a shout out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, off subject here, Dawn, but I do think LA has grown up quite a bit in the last 20, 25 years on the culinary scene and become, you know, a real leader in the country in terms of trends and, and cool chefs doing interesting things. Would you agree with that? 100%. And yeah, micro neighborhoods and mm -hmm. you can find in a strip mall, which looks completely unappetizing, some really interesting food. So yeah, LA is huge and the, the produce is so amazing. So yes, for sure. Yeah. So after uh, graduating from Stanford uh, with the, you, you majored in international relations, went to work on Wall Street, you, you went abroad to Nigeria. Can you share a little bit about that experience? I was super young and it was before the internet and I was on Wall Street. It was clear that that wasn't going to be my path. And someone actually suggested that I apply for something called a Rotary Scholarship. You got to write an essay about what you would study. And I wanted to, I wrote something about um, the literature of West Africa, particularly Nigeria, which, you know, has given us Chinua Achebe, Wole Shoyinka, so many others. And I had that opportunity and it was amazing. It was fascinating. Um, at the end of the day, it was a bit of self-study because of, you know, social unrest and political unrest. The university shut down. Talk about things making you appreciate what you have here. But it really opened my eyes to, um, first of all, having the rest of the world. Nigeria is a particularly interesting place because it has Islamic, Christian, and then kind of native religions, a vast art uh, production in terms of, you know, sculpture and literature. And it's just an amazing, it was an amazing place. And I can't, and at, came back, sat next to a publisher or, or I can't even remember anymore. I sat next to a publisher going and I thought you got paid, you get paid to read. I'm an only child. I've been reading all of my life. <laughs> and um, then I met a publisher when I got back to New York and I was hired uh, to be Andre Schifrin's assistant. Andre Schifrin's this legendary publisher who had helmed Pantheon Books, but was starting a new uh, publishing house called The New Press. And their big book was The New Jim Crow. But before that hit gold, he had been publishing books in that vein uh, from the very beginning. And I started out as an assistant and became an editor. And it was just, you know, from there. That's, that's interesting. But prior to that, uh, I mean, I read this, I think, in your book that um, you, you acquired quite, you had, I think you have a collection of like 150 cookbooks at that time, probably more now. So cooking and food was, was always a passion and interest of yours. Correct? Oh, I loved cookbooks. I, I used to love to, uh, you know, wake up grab coffee, do a little work, and then crawl into bed and, you know, read cookbooks. It was really fun. I had so many that a bookshelf toppled over, literally. And I'm lucky no one got hurt. I had so many. I also worked at Random House at one point. And I will say, you know, if you were a book publisher, there are very few perks, you know, very few perks, but one of them is free books. So I would get a lot of, you know, cookbooks. Uh, Random House is a great, you know, one of the great cookbook publishers. And so, yes, I love that. I, I had to... You know, if you live in a New York apartment, you have to weed. And I was like, you know, how many Spanish cookbooks do you need, especially since you don't cook Spanish food? How many Italian cookbooks do you need, even if you do cook Italian food? So I had to weed out a little bit. Yeah, editing becomes even more important in tight spaces, right? Exactly. So um, I believe it was 1999. Um, you authored uh, "If You Can, If You Can Stand the Heat." 
Tales from Chefs and Restaurateurs, which I which I recently read. And I wanted to talk to you about a couple of people that I think are just really incredibly unique and, and uh, familiar to most of the people that listen to this program, Edna Lewis and Anthony Bourdain. So first, Edna Lewis. Now, I, I happen to love corn pudding. Yeah, and I took the recipe from your book and yeah. made corn pudding this week for my wife and I, and and it worked. It was delicious. <laughs> I was I'm very proud to say. And I actually met Edna uh, through Chef Joe Randall uh, back in the '90s. I was opening a restaurant in L.A. and I was was trying to uh, get Edna. Ultimately, didn't work out that that uh, she wasn't able to come out, but we tried to get her to help us open up uh, Georgia back in the '90s. But uh, I had a great series of conversations with her. But, you know, since there is this heightened interest in the contribution of African-American chefs, can you help establish Edna Lewis's place in that conversation? Sure. Yes. So the corn pudding in that book is delicious. My mom, it's funny that you start with that because my mom actually makes that corn pudding all the time and talks about it. Um, so Edna Lewis uh, has written three, I believe, or maybe four by the time she passed away, but maybe three when I wrote the book, really classic books, including A Taste of Country Cooking. Um, and she was just a repository of knowledge about the flavors and the cuisine of uh, the South. And what she did for many cooks is give them permission to not look to Europe, not look to Italy or France for kind of, you know, highbrow cuisine, but to look to their own roots, their own Southern roots. So she is really the rock for so many people who have thought about their own culinary journeys. We did in our April issue a really fun piece about 1971 and Chef Alexander Smalls talks about the permission she gave them to love their own Southern traditions and Southern mm -hmm. food. Uh, mm -hmm. So she was also just an extremely interesting person. And I was privileged to be able to meet her. I, I did this book where I wanted to reach out to several chefs across different regions, women, men, people at different stages in their career, and get them to talk about what being a chef is really like and uh, their philosophy toward cooking. And so she was generous enough to share some time with me. Yeah, I know uh, Chef Mishama Bailey, also of the Gray uh, in Savannah. Uh, I think she heads up the Edna Lewis Foundation now. Also talked about, um, you know, embracing her Southern roots and not feeling like she needed, you know, the, the, the French or, or some European validation for the food that she thought was, you know, the food that she wanted to do. Exactly. She's doing some great stuff there. Exactly. Also in our um, April issue, we got uh, Nikki Giovanni did a poem, uh, referenced a poem that she wrote for Edna, which was really, really fun. So, wow. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, and then Anthony Bourdain is one of your subjects. And of course, your book predates his, his breakout book, Kit Kitchen Confidential, mm -hmm. and his subsequent television superstardom. And interestingly, the title of the Bourdain chapter in your book is A Portrait of the Chef as a Young Rebel. So you kind of called that, you know, as he was becoming that, which I think is interesting. And we would all come to know him as kind of this, this rebel. But, um, you know, before reading your book, um, I didn't know that Anthony Bourdain had written a book before Kitchen Confidential. Um, I think it was titled Bone in the Throat. And I wanted to get your take on a closing paragraph in the Bourdain chapter. And this is you writing about Anthony Bourdain. Quote, he acknowledges that most foodies are quixotic in the way they regard the industry. But he wants them to dig deeper, to see the pathos and pain, fun and scandal beyond the romance. End quote. 
Um, Bourdain, then that's the end of your quote. Bourdain, then you quote him saying, I can deal with seeing a chef passed out on a sack of flour, cigarette in hand at the end of the evening. I find that interesting, but I don't think that would play too well with the crowd. And then you wrote in closing, perhaps he's selling the crowd short. Maybe they can stand the heat after all. So, Dawn, it seems here that you kind of saw something around the corner, a curiosity that Bourdain would capitalize on his bestseller, but also kind of what the consumer had a growing appetite for this, this kind of pull back the curtain, look into the restaurant world. And of course, we've seen the explosion of chef shows and all of that. But what, what did you, what were you seeing in, in, or hearing and, and feeling at that time to kind of had that, have that level of insight into uh, what we were about to discover about restaurants? You're, that's such a good question. And, and reading that quote, it just brought me back to to the time with uh, Anthony Bourdain. So when I assembled this book, I told a friend I was doing it and he said, look, there's a guy you have to talk to if you're going to talk to chefs. You have to meet this guy, Anthony Bourdain. He hadn't written Con- Kitchen Confidential yet. I think New York chefs knew him, but he was not a household name. And so I called him up and I will say all of the chefs were incredibly generous with their time. He said, yeah, sure, come by. And he talks he talked in paragraphs, you know, there, he just was who he was. And, and the Bourdain that we saw later in the shows, he was that guy in terms of his outlook and his regard and his, his language. Um, when I, when I met him, he was a writer when I met him. So I think for him sitting down with an editor was a fun thing. It was a big deal. He wrote mysteries actually, if I recall, bone in the throat was a mystery. Um, and I saw the recent documentary and I, there's a very poignant scene in there when he finds out the Kitchen Confidential had become a bestseller. I think at his heart, you know, it is is a portrait of the chef as a rebel, but he was also an artist, I want to say. I felt like that, I hope that that doesn't get lost in all of that. He really cared about books. What I saw, the reason I started the book is because several friends of mine, we were romanticizing opening a restaurant. Oh, it'd be so fun. You know, I had, I had a friend who was getting a PhD in economics, as was her husband. I had another friend who was, you know, a lawyer and he's now a partner. So he's on that track. But yet we all kind of romanticized the restaurant industry and chefs. And I thought that, you know, he had that energy that we were kind of romanticizing, even as he was breaking it down, that it's not romantic at all. It's, you know, there's a lot of drugs and people passed out and it's a hard life and you don't get to see your family. But I I, I could just feel like we were at that inflection moment where this industry, which used to just be kind of like regarded as really utilitarian, was about to be romanticized um, for good or bad. And uh, he was great to talk to at the time. A part of that was Food Network and, you know, all these cooking shows. It was all just becoming part of this, hey, these are interesting people. This is an in- interesting industry. Let's amplify it. And uh, he was able to, in that interview, on the one hand, kind of put a damper on that notion, but he himself was so interesting. He also just kind of continued the romance, I think. 
Yeah, that's that's what I, I I felt like you saw something there and you you saw what he was about to do and what he was suggesting by even his suggestion that people might not want to know about this. I think that was kind of a wink and a nod. He knew people would really want to know about that. But I think it was depending on the storyteller. But you you picked up on that. And I thought that was that was just really uh, prescient on your part. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so turning back now as we're closing just to the uh, to the upcoming issue, um, can you talk about what you are loving in the October issue? Um, ooh. <laughs> so we're working on like November, December. Oh, um, I just have to look at my notes. What am I loving in the October issue? I'm loving the different restaurants um, that we talk about again in the audacity of opening. I'm loving the story on parenting. I think it's really important. We have a, another feature called restaurants worth traveling for where we ask different food professionals as well as some team members where they want to travel. Like where did you miss traveling to just in terms of food? So, you know, we have a restaurant in New Orleans. Um, Sonia Chopra, who's our executive editor, talks about a bakery called Bandit in Birmingham, Alabama. Someone talks about a place called Bocknell Wine and this delicious charred broccoli salad that they have. Mm. We also have recipes for many of these. Um, the, the tart from the uh, bakery is a chocolate and pear tart. We have a recipe in our pages for that. We have a recipe for the charred broccoli salad. I love a place in San Francisco called Slanted Door, and they've got a kind of lemongrass lamb chop. We have a recipe for that. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited also just a preview of our November issue. We've got a feature on Stanley Tucci that I think is really fun. So And, and just great classics and updated classics for a great Thanksgiving table. Love it. I love it. I know there's a place in L.A. that does a vegan Thanksgiving, does a vegan turkey and all the fixings are, are vegan. I, I haven't tried that, but I don't know that I'm, that I'm ready to give up my uh, my butterball, but uh, maybe yeah. one of these Thanksgivings. <laughs> we have a great feature. I'm probably going to get in trouble for previewing, but I have to say I really love the sides. So let me just say we have a feature for those of us who are there for the sides. I'm excited about that. I'm definitely there for the corn pudding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We actually, Brad, we have a corn pudding in this issue, uh, in our in our Thanksgiving issue. Is it that corn pudding or? I'm not going to give all the secrets. <laughs> you have, on, to, you have to subscribe oh, or, okay. or go online or, you know. All right. I will. Well, maybe you will share with us some book recommendations for our listeners. Anything that uh, you're interested in? Yeah, I just want, I have to give a shout out to an author who I published um, and then, you know, left right as it was coming out, but a fantastic book that people are loving called The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. It's a book about a rock group that comes to an end uh, after a kind of dramatic concert. And it, the novel is the journalist finding out why. And there's some fantastic characters. And even though it says a novel, everyone Googles them and Wikipedia's them to find out really the true story of Opal and Nev. And I'm like, no, 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 it's a novel. It's a novel. It's really compulsive reading, page turning reading. People are really loving that. So I'll give that book my, my shout out. And then because I did uh, just for the pages of my dream dinner party in Bon Appetit, I loved Billie Jean King's memoir. And because I interviewed her for our dream 
dinner party column, I also did read and loved Billie Jean King's memoir, All In. All In. Billie Jean King. All right. I'm writing that down. So, Dom, last thing before I let you go. I saw a picture of you recently on Martha's Vineyard on the beach in Aquinnah. The vineyard for me, I grew up going there. It's a very special place, uh, just uh, just you know, amazing memories. And for those that don't know, Aquinnah um, is a Native American land. There are interesting restaurants, a place called the Aquinnah Shop. The Vanderhoop family makes fantastic food up there, the banana cream pie. If you haven't had it, you must. And I know you're a Marie Callender's person, so you must try Ann Vanderhoop's banana cream pie if you haven't. But standing on the beach there, the clay cliffs, the the minerals that, you know, come from the cliffs into the water, the glistening, yeah. you know, Atlanta. I mean, it's like, you know, spiritual. Just give me a, a little bit of what that environment does for you in terms of just how you feel about life. Well, I have to say I spent more time in Aquina this summer than in previous summers. Uh, the island is up island and down island and Aquina is at the very tip. And yes, it's Wampanoag land and the cliffs are red clay and the light is special. I, I took a friend there, B. Michael and Mark Anthony, his husband, and I wasn't going to take them because it was a rainy day and I was, you know, didn't want to play tour guide that day. But we got out of the car and he looked around and I could see the light in their eye that they instantly got it, even on a rainy day. Um, it is a spiritual place. It's a beautiful place. The light is special. Um, there's a great restaurant there called the Outermost Inn, which is beautiful. It's set on a cliff. And to get to it, you have to pass um, the Vanderhoop Orange Peel Bakery, which has delicious scones. And they do this beautiful community pizza every week where they make the dough and I believe the, the sauce and you bring your own toppings, which is really, really special. So it's also, uh, you know, they have broadened what community means. It's really special. I, of course, also go to Martha's Vineyard because of uh, the African-American community that is there. I found, uh, encountered and met a woman uh, named uh, Kahina Van Dyke, who has just opened an inn. And she said, you know, I'm going to open in so that our children will have a place to restore and recharge as generations before us have. So I find it a restorative place. I find it spiritual in that way, um, just to be around so many people of all persuasions, all nationalities. Um, but I, I am particularly in community there with African-American. It's where I, I you run into people you went to high school with, you run into people you went to nursery school with, and it's a place to recharge from, from the kind of microaggressions. Um, it's a place to just to be at peace. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find it, um, you know, I, I just feel differently there than I do almost anywhere. You know, New York, LA, I love those cities. But when I land on Martha's Vineyard, there's just something that that happens to me that uh, I feel, you know, just at peace. And, and just I'm not I'm not wondering if I'm where I need to be. I feel like I'm exactly where I should be. It's funny. I was at the U.S. Open yesterday and I met a friend of a friend and she said the exact same thing. She just said, that's my home, my spiritual yeah. home. And I feel the same. Well, I hope to uh, sit next to you and share a lobster roll one of these days. And uh, for sure. And, uh, 
Don right. Davis, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time and uh, wish you the best at Bon Appetit and looking forward to reading every upcoming issue that you have your name on. Thank you, Brad. And I take me up on the 11 Madison and I'll take you up on the lobster roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there for the carrot tartare. Okay, sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Dawn. You. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Ambassador Shabazz is joining me now with our segment, How We Move. Ambassador, what's going on? Well, that was absolutely marvelous. I wanted to crash the uh, the party, so to speak. You know, uh, what a circumference that uh, Don Davis has incorporated and lived and now sharing with so many via her various uh, professional roles that incorporate her passion, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because it, for every topic you will talk about, I wanted to look something up, write something down, join in, sculpt a how, how we move segment around it. I'm very deep. I think it's really one of the things that we need to hear more of how people are inspired amidst the the doldrums or the setbacks that we experience, but in them, you know, unearths these opportunities to hear, you know, what I'm loving, you know, and you captured it. You captured it per your inquiry and understanding of her. And she just got to share such an abundance and it made me want to know more and figure out how other people learn more. You know, we cannot lock up these good golden moments, parts of the country, parts of the world, experiences, so that people realize that they can customize their joy somehow. You know, yeah. how do we do that? It can't, nothing's going to be like the old way. We're not moving like that anymore. So mm-hmm. how we move, how one moves, how we journey, you really get to be the conductor. What is that? What does that, you know, look like? And, you know, while people are trying to sustain their, their, their interest in socializing, traveling, getting to know what, Um, their fundamental desires are. I just want to encourage that people continue to find ways to connect, but of course, do it safely. We don't want to go backwards. I have loved the moments that I've been able to peek out, dine, engage, embrace, but I am a bit of a mask fanatic. (laughs) It's part of my Mm. wardrobe and the hygienic components, but having a taste of re-engaging with culture um, being a part of innovation has been really significant. Yeah. And, you know, as, as Dawn alluded to with the, um, you know, she's, she's a gatekeeper at this point in terms of the flow of information and what gets paid attention to. Now the world is really opening up to whatever you want to do, whatever your interests right. are. Um, when you diversify the, the gatekeeper, you allow the flow of information to the general public to not be edited in a way that leaves out portions of the culture. So whatever your interests are, you should be able to, you know, to find something about that. And I know as you move around the globe and you talk about the things that interest you, that has to land for you. And the only way that it works is if there's a tag team, you know, you have to be inspired, Mm -hmm. willing, wanting, yearning, desirous to be part of it and then find the people with whom you can connect to move it to the next space. One of the analogies I use as having been a heptathlon once upon a time in my youth is the baton race and the lineup, which, you know, I may uh, touch the rope, 
but I couldn't do it unless all the pieces before me were prepared and, and ready and could pass that baton. And listening to her, while I have ways to curate some of those experiences, listening to what she offer even books downtime. You know, one of the things I've been saying to people and you and I talked about it uh, recently is just how many people, when you write them an email, it's bouncing back. I've unplugged. I'm not online right now. I've, I've stepped away. And as we are about to celebrate the International Day of Peace throughout September, you know, the question is, how do we do that? How do we unplug in a way that is not withdrawn or secluded like last year? where we're not mm -hmm. hibernating because we're stuck, but hibernating to refuel or to catch up or meditate or downsize a new health regimen. I mean, it could be any of those kinds of things. And as I'm also preparing people for weddings abroad, destination weddings, I'm assisting those said hotels. But what is a bubble? What is a unique bubble at your hotel or resort in that foreign country? What's there so people know that there's safe travel and they don't have to delay weddings or getaways or uh, things of the sort? And, you know, um, for me, she mentioned something about traveling to Namibia. And there's this amazing, I haven't been, but there's an amazing uh, ecotourism ventures like a, a an african safari in this um at this resort in namibia that is absolutely stunning but you have to be ready to unplug i mean it's luxury living it's kind of glamping um it's community run by the people in the village which is really great because the resources then go back to it you everything is authentic but it's on the river you know the sunrises and sunsets and can you be that still? You can bring your books, you can bring your music, you can engage. Can we quiet the noise? Can we surrender to the that which is around us? And, you know, to participate and figure those things out. Well, and that's something you and I were talking a bit about earlier, you know, the, the rebalancing that, uh, you know, this past year plus has, has kind of caused everybody involuntarily initially. Yeah. But now I think we're kind of, you know, you're seeing office workers who are, when given the opportunity, deciding not to go back to the office. People are changing careers. People are looking to work less and focus more on pursuing passion. Um, so we're kind of in a, in a global shift that way. Yeah. And that's why I said there's a tag team, right? So you, mm -hmm. you can identify what works for you, but who are the other people that bring other arteries to that fulfillment, right? Because that's another thing. We can't do any of this alone. Um, even if it feels isolated, there are people, I live on Zoom with, you know, meetings and, and people who have found me to talk about variable ways to actualize. And I'm just thrilled by the variety. You know, it's endless. It's one of the things that in a, in a, in a stayed moment, in a stagnant moment, you realize, uh, there's so much going on in that pause. And it's mm -hmm. really knowing for you what resonates so that you can, of course, know how to connect, how to move and with whom to move and hope that it has movement, right? I'm not at this point or stage or age interested in just being busy for busy sake. <laughs> But if I know that there's a dot that's connecting, that there's a, 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 a seed that's nurturing or something that I could harvest later and share, that's exciting for me. And I'm meeting people, whether they're in their 20s or their 80s, and that's the cord, right, is 
it's endless in, innovation and no, no restriction. Um, I never refer to a plan B or plan C. It's always a plan A. If it didn't work mm -hmm. the way you thought it was, move, shift gears into the new plan A. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and Dawn alluded to this in a, in a different way, but I think it's kind of arriving for me at the same place. And she talked about, um, you know, being invited to someone's home for dinner and not feeling that there was effort or attention put into it. And I think what we're all feeling is, is a, a different level of feeling purposeful. Yeah. Right. That we want things to, you know, to they have to land, they have to matter. You know, life can be serious and challenging. So the things that we decide to do in pursuit of our own happiness and pleasure and how we spend our time, there has to be a purpose to that. Absolutely. And you don't you can merge both the professional and the personal, the commercial and the intimate. You know, um, the prime minister of Grenada, Keith Mitchell, um, recently did a post that circulated and he was making sure that the tourists that came in for Labor Day and, and all of those things were mindful. He was giving that urgent note notice to the citizens about being cautious and hygienic and mindful of the distancing and all of those kinds of things. But he said, enjoy the cultural wonders, right? Mm -hmm. Incorporate mm -hmm. natural herbs and spices of the island to protect and build your immune system. It was like, it's such a natural part for other people. We're politicizing the issue of wellness where other people are talking about, we already have some aspects of this. If we adhere, we can find a way to re-engage, right? And move as we, um, at, at, at a pace that enables our marketplace to sustain, but take care of yourself, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and take care of those around you and still enjoy the wonders. I was really proud of that because it was a brave blend of inviting people to come inviting people to participate, but also utilizing the atmosphere, the natural wonders, you know, right. um, just like the resort in Namibia, just it's there. Well, well, wellness can cover a broad spectrum of lifestyle choices. And I, and I embrace that. And uh, so how we move, we move in the spirit of wellness all yes. day long. Ambassador Shabazz. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, associate producer Ariel Mancibo, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast where you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.